Welcome to Forward, the podcast where we ask the journalists the questions. I am your host, Alison Innes, and each episode I bring you a conversation with one of our researchers from Brock University's Faculty of Humanities. My guest today is Rob Alexander, an associate professor with the Department of English Language and Literature, who specializes in the areas of rhetoric and composition and journalism studies. His research looks at how journalistic subjectivity expresses itself in literary journalism, and we're going to learn more about what that means in our conversation. Rob's scholarly work has appeared in various journals and edited books. He has written about literary journalism and eco-criticism for the Routledge Companion to American Journalism, and most recently published Fear and Loathing Worldwide, Gonzo Journalism Beyond Hunter S. Thompson, edited with Christine Isager of the University of Copenhagen. His fiction work has appeared in Wild Rose Country and Prairie Fire. Rob has been actively involved in the International Association for Literary Journalism Studies since its founding in 2006. The association exists to encourage and improve scholarly research and education in literary journalism around the world. And we will also be asking him more about that today. So welcome, Rob. Yeah, thanks, Allison. It's great to be here. We're very glad that we have been able to connect and uh, and have this conversation today. For sure. So to get us started, what is literary journalism and where might we find it? Uh, well, literary journalism is a, it's referred to as a hybrid genre. It's a type of writing that combines uh, journalistic practices of uh, you know associated with gathering facts, with uh, narrative styles that we associate with the novel or or with fiction. So it's it's um, it's also referred to as long form journalism, narrative journalism. You could you know it, you would might also associate it with long magazine articles. Uh, where where would you find it? Uh, maybe you know feature articles in newspapers would have some elements of literary journalism in them, in, in them. but uh, the most common place would be in magazines. New Yorker, for example, has been a, a key venue for, for this uh, type of writing uh, for, for many decades. In Canada, you could think of the walrus as, as a place where the, this type of work appears, but also things like Esquire, Vanity Fair. Uh, th- these magazines have been where it's typically been found. Also, I think increasingly it's, it's, uh, it appears in books. There, there, there's books. So, um, you know, uh, b- uh, books are, are where one would expect to see this type of uh, genre represented. What are some of the some some of the differences that that we would notice between between kind of that everyday um, journalism that we're seeing online or in newspapers compared to the longer form? I guess in in you know regular reporting is it's there's some things we associated with with a news story it's objective uh, straight news stories tend to follow a particular pattern the inverted pyramid format is typical uh, news stories deal with empirical matters there's a lot of facts a lot of numbers uh, evidence there consists of quotes from often from experts and so on uh, you know the format for journalism is is is, is generally uh, pretty strict. And if you look at it historically, the, the sort of paradigm for uh, newspaper reporting has been the camera, right? That, that sort of objective lens of the camera looking at the world, taking a picture, 
in which, you know, the notion is there's no commentary by the author of that representation. That's so the reporter leaves him or herself out of the picture. And literary journalism is in many ways a, a sort of a sort of response to that, the sense that, well, for one thing, in in newspaper reporting, the reporter is the word commonly used is alienated from the subject in some ways. There is a distance between between the writer and the thing about which he or she is 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 writing. So the, there, there's an attempt to sort of establish a closer relationship between the writer and the thing about about which he or she is writing. Other things you could say, literary journalism, it, it's literary. It it is, and you know, people tend to interpret that as being well, you know, some fancy language, some good writing, some some elaborate metaphors. But it's it's actually uh, much more profound the differences that the literary aspects bring to it right there is a there's a sense that if i'm if i'm in literary journalism i will be writing about a subject but the subjects that are the best ones to write about are ones that as the writer susan orlean says they sort of funnel out and they suggest a a broader significance right you may be writing about a person a but their story should be one that will have a sort of wider significance in the same way that we look to fiction to suggest broader themes that's not really the case in newspaper stories where you know there's an accident at the corner of you know x and y street and we just want the facts and the details so 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 there's that aspect the literary aspect is that you know the the voice of the writer which is repressed in mainstream journalism is allowed to flourish here and along with that voice you know the the personality of the writer is allowed to come out that's that in fact that's an important part of the genre we see this person engaging with their subject matter and just like in a novel that sort of engagement can develop over the course of the narrative the, in fact the writer may in, in fact find themselves changed by uh by what happened um i could go on i mean the language itself is 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 uh, is uh you know they say they say with literary journalism the, the important thing about it that i didn't mention it is factual everything here you have to be able to corroborate you can't make it up this isn't fake news but the literary dimension of it allows for a certain amount of leeway that isn't necessarily there in mainstream journalism. They say that literary journalists editorialize through their imagery, right? Through the metaphorical language, through the way their stories are constructed. So there is a lot of leeway in there for the writer to insert their subjective opinion of things. So their language would be about themselves, like they'd be saying, I do this, I do that. In some cases, yeah. In some cases, it's only implied. I mean, there's a whole range of, of possibilities here. The, the okay. person may not be evident there, but in a lot of the, particularly the stuff that I study, the process of getting the story becomes part of the story. The relationship between the writer and the source becomes a part of the story. And this does also, you know, typically a journalist, you know, journalism is by and large, as one reporter I know complained to me, it's a desk job. <laughs> Not always, but we tend to think of, you know, the foreign correspondent as this intrepid person traveling around the world. But I think many journalists uh, work <clears throat> from from their desks, phoning up sources, getting the story, getting the quote, putting it down. Uh, whereas uh, in this case, the uh, the, the sort, of, uh, sort of hallmark of this is that you're out there, right? You're out there with your sources, often spending 
long periods of time with them. It's another name for the genre. It's it's characterized by what's called immersion journalism. You immerse yourself in your story for an extended period of time. And what that does is it allows you to experience the person or the subject about which you are writing in a more sort of profound way, right? You can get a sense of, you know, newspaper stories, because they tend to be mm. banged out rapidly, tend to almost caricature their sources. They tend to be reduced to, uh, often we say stereotypes are, are, are often often evoked in news stories. But if you hang out with someone, someone like the writer Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc did, she hung out with her sources for 10 years. So if you hang out for so, with someone for 10 years, you're going to be aware of all the complexities of that individual in a way you would say with, you know, a spouse. <laughs> You know, you would be, and it is likened to a marriage sometime. So you're aware of the, 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 the it's, it's not possible to stereotype someone that you've hung around with that long, right? But in, in that sense, and what they often discover, the writers often discover, they start seeing themselves in their sources, right? Mm-hmm. They start seeing aspects of this person that was totally other before. They start recognizing aspects of themselves and they start relating to them in that way. So uh, newspaper reporting, that sort of interview techniques often referred, often characterized as an interrogation, or if you use an environmental metaphor, it's sort of extractive journalism. You're trying to get get the truth out of that person. Whereas literary journalism, it's more uh, a long-term relationship where, where, uh, where you mm. become uh, aware of the um, source in, 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 I guess, a deeper, less simplistic way. So when you talk about journalism, I know you talk from experience um, because you worked as a reporter at one point. So I'm interested in hearing a little bit about your story, how you went from from reporting um, into studying and and writing about literary journalism. Well, I I went to journalism school, to Carleton Journalism School in, in the late 70s, early 80s. And, and that was an interesting time in journalism school because on the one hand, the journalism schools in that day were packed largely because of Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein. And the fact that that, that someone with a pen and a, and, a, and a steno pad could take down a president, this was very encouraging for a lot of people. Was, and uh, so I did that and uh, got that sort of practical knowledge. But at the same time, a lot of the people who I was in school with, they were, they were, they were aware of that. You know, uh, what they were reading was a different type of journalism. They were reading uh, what was then called the new journalism. So they were reading works by Tom Wolfe, Hunter S. Thompson, Joan Didion, these people who were innovating a new style of journalism that is now sort of like what I'm describing here as literary journalism, right? These were people who were in their stories, who were participating. Even someone like Hunter S. Thompson, who would in fact be a catalyst for a story rather than just simply a neutral observer about things. He would become a performer who made things happen in the story. So you know, so there were these two sort of avenues in journalism school. One was the, the the straightforward investigative reporting of the Woodward and Bernstein type that was very encouraging. But there was this other sort of literary side. I mean, journalists are writers and they do like to think of those possibilities as being open to them. So, uh, sorry, the question was, how did I get into this? So, so I got a journalism background and I was a sports editor and I worked uh, in the West Bureau of the Toronto Star doing stories for a couple of years. But then I had a long interest in... in um, literature as well. So at a certain point, I went back to uh, university and I uh, got a PhD in English. 
So I had these two interests, right? On the one hand, I have a great uh, affection for journalism and, and journalists, but on the other, I, I, I like uh, literature. And uh, I was hired by Brock in, I think, um, 2001 and uh, to, to uh, lead their writing, rhetoric, and discourse studies program. Uh, or to work in that program, and among those courses, there was a journalism course. So that was that was a great pleasure to teach. Just as a, my my first, this is anecdotally, uh, my first journalism class at Brock was September twelfth, two thousand and one. That's a date you won't forget. And the topic that day was what is news. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, well, I have this background in literature. I'm teaching in an English department. Maybe there's some appetite for a course in literary journalism, which could be pitched also as a magazine writing course. So that came about, and I still teach that, and that's a, that's a, that's a lot of fun. So um, I think that's that's how I got in it. And Brock was helpful to me in 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 in, in realizing that that sort of a. Uh, possibility. So you've been a part of creating a, a new discipline and a new academic discipline of studying literary journalism. Um, how how does a new academic discipline kind of arise, like a new area of research? I can I can tell you the sort of story of it, and it does relate to, to this idea I had to create this course in literary journalism or magazine writing. Uh, so that must have been in 2005 or so. And I had proposed a grad course on this, and I thought I'd do some research. And in doing so, I discovered that uh, that year, 2006, I believe, 2005 maybe, a group of people, about 15 people, got together in for a conference in Nancy, France, France, on on Upton Sinclair's uh, "The Jungle." And I guess at this meeting, this this group of people, some were from the U.S., some from France, a couple from Portugal, decided, "Hey, there's something here. We should maybe propose another conference on." Uh, literary journalism. Uh, and so that meeting came about in 2006, and that was at the uh, Paris Institute of Political Studies, Sciences Po in, in Paris. And I went to that, and that was, uh, there were about 20 people there. But among the people there were some of the people who had been writing about this and sort of keeping this, had been, had been sort of poking and prodding at this, at this, at this sort of genre that had not really been acknowledged in a scholarly way had been sort of testing this and they were there and uh so that was 20 people there it looked like it had great potential and it has and since then so since that was 2006 and uh since then there's been annual conferences the numbers of people who are members have grown it's an international membership so so you know the people from all over the world are are participating in this and it's and it's given rise to a journal that's uh, that that is published uh, biannual or it's published twice a year. I think it's we're now up to the thirteenth volume of that. So, uh, and and numerous books have come out of this. So so it's been really interesting seeing this thing get its feet and and sort of um, come to life. Numerous books last year that was the Rutledge Companion to American. Uh, literary journalism studies published that struck me as a landmark, and then in 2022, there's going to be the Rutledge Companion to um, World Literary Journalism Studies, I believe it's called. So um, all of these things sort of uh, there. There are people who are who are. I, I I think it's said that that what will mark its emergence as a sort of discipline or or you know whatever is uh, when. There are a significant number of PhD dissertations in the, uh, in in this field emerging. 
And I know that in June, it's not a PhD dissertation in in uh, literary journalism as such, but Baraka will be a, a student defending uh, her thesis that has a significant component in it that is that is that deals with literary journalism. So you know, it's it's been very interesting seeing this thing become real. That's really exciting. Um, my my own background is classics, which is a discipline that's you know <laughs> feels as old as the hills, right? So it's 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 exciting to hear how. There's there's still uh, new areas of study and research being being opened up and kind of how it happens. It's sort of interesting too because classics is well established. It has a foothold in 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 you know in, in most major institutions. Literary journalism though is pretty obscure. It is pretty is pretty niche, right? <clears throat> but what's interesting is that. If you take as your sort of uh, you know your your catchment area the whole world, you can find enough people to do mm-hmm. it. So you know with a, with a global constituency of maybe two hundred people, and the great thing is when you go to these conferences. So people like me, you know, I have I have journalism degree, background in journalism, but also literary, uh, you know, PhD in liter- literary studies. So this sort of weird hybrid that I am. Um, you sort of fit into literature department, but not exactly because you have your foot in this other world. And it turns out, you know, when you meet people at these conferences, at these conferences, it's like they're looking for their people, right? <laughs> and they suddenly see you, and and you can see the look on their face. It's sort of like, wow, people like people like me. This is so this is so so weird. And so you know, it's fine giving these people. Uh, a sort of scholarly home has been, has been a, a, a great, uh, you know, a great experience and finding a home like that. Yeah. And we're going to include links to, to the organization and the journal in our show notes. So if our listeners are interested in learning more about this, um, check out, check out our notes. You mentioned that you are working on, on some upcoming projects. You've got a volume on social justice and literary journalism with Willa McDonald that will be hopefully coming out um, 2022. Uh, yeah. And um, social justice issues are often in the news these days. And I'm just wondering, how does literary journalism address social justice issues? I, I think, you know, journalists, I think, go into it in many cases because they are motivated motivated by this desire to address you know problems that they see in society and there's been a long long history of that so so there is you know a sort of uh, right in in journalism's dna there is you know and there's lots of problems with journalism so let's not overlook that fact but but there still is this sense that the that the that the journalist is there to uh, to uh, try to address inequities, things that aren't fair. Maybe address questions of marginalized groups. Try to represent their experience. And it seems you know, and it seems that literary journalism is particularly well adapted to this because of the way that it's it uh, the literary journalists will spend a long time on a story right we'll spend a long time with the people who are who are uh, affected by these sort of social social problems um i think historically it goes back you can look at nelly bly who uh, and i'm sorry i don't know the dates exactly but you know late 19th century i believe nelly bly was a us journalist <clears throat> concerned with the state of things in uh, mental hospitals in new york state and so she had herself sort of uh, put into one for a while and reported it at, you know at, at length on what was happening in there and the result was a lot of changes to the legislation so 
journalism can change things. There's no doubt about it. And I think literary journalism has a particular set of of, of tools in its toolbox that that will allow for uh, for issues to be foregrounded. That will allow the experience of individuals who are subjected to wrongs to be represented in a way. Something that literary journalism does that's that's uh, particularly unique in my mind is the way that it can sort of shift scales. It can you can go from on the one hand to describing in a sort of empirical research sort of way the big picture of a problem, but then in the next paragraph you can focus down onto an individual who is sort of a victim of this problem. So you can do both. You, so you can give a person, you can give the reader an understanding of structural problems that may be contributing to someone's life being miserable, but then you can actually go into that, in, you can hang out with that person and live with them and describe what that person's is life. So, so you get a sense that you can understand it reasonably, sort of rationally, but you can also get a sense of the feeling of it. And that's something literary journalism does. It gives you, it, it's often said it allows you to feel the facts. And this seems like a, a potent way to, you know, but 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 not but not without losing sight of the sort of uh, of of you know the sort of material that one would expect in in you know research papers on on a particular topic. So you know th- these are, these are all this book we have we have uh, you know various accounts of of uh, different different case studies. There's something on the Dalit activist Mina can. Uh, Kandazami, I think her name is, in India, and um, Beru's uh, Buchani, who is a, a, a refugee who was incarcerated in Australia, sort of holding tank there, Manus Island. A, a lot of a lot of, of these stories will come into play there. So, and, and just that the sense is that you know literary journalism does provide a special way of getting these these uh, these stories out there. Yeah, it um, reminds me a little bit of our conversation in season one with Linda Steer on drug photography. Um, getting at some of the same same themes, but from a visual representation and and how how we depict things visually, and this is how we um, use their use stories to to bridge some of some stigmas or stereotypes or just the limits of our own of our own personal experience to connect with people. Yeah, I think that's right because what this genre does is it tells stories, right? It is about telling stories. So they so you will have scenes, you will have dialogue, you will have all these things that put the reader right there in the same way that they would be there, you know, in a novel being sort of with the people in the room observing what's going on. And then, you know, that scene would then be reframed in a larger context that would show that would that would suggest, you know, why this is the case. So, yeah, for sure, very 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 much like that. So you also are writing about eco-journalism. Um, does, that, does that intersect with social justice and, as well? For sure. Yeah. It's, I, I, I proposed a grad course on this uh, a couple of years ago. I thought, well, you know, I, you know, because we all, you want to do something about environmental crisis that we're in the midst of. And it seemed like a, a good opportunity for me to learn about eco-criticism. And uh, particularly since, you know, literary journalism or, or more broadly nonfiction have been sort of key 
uh, genres in environmental writings, you know, from since since the late 1800s. In fact, it was sort of dominated by nonfiction genres. That's changed since. So, uh, you know, so there was a sort of natural. I had my foot in the door with it that way. It was a way of, of getting into it. But it also grew out of a paper that I wrote on uh, a book by John Valent called "The Tiger." This is an article I wrote on on uh, John Valence the Tiger, which was his account of um, the hunt for a Siberian tiger in uh, in eastern Russia. And what about that? What came out for me in that book was the difficulty of writing journalistically about animals. The, the, the work that's done sort of highlights the, the the sort of parallel between writing about human subjects and writing about non-human subjects in a sort of ethical. Uh, effective way with literary journalism, as I said, you know, you hang out with your sources for a long time. You un, you you do research on them. You understand all that. So much of newspaper journalism that deals with animals tends to be well. I, I think it's called the moose in the mall story. It's when it's when a deer ends up in someone's backyard. It's whenever an animal sort of encroaches on the urban human space, right? And has to be you know. Sh- has to be tranquilized and they, that's sort of like the extent of it right but uh, people writing about this they think how do we how how can you write about animals that uh, and it sounds sort of odd at first but that represents the animal's perspective that it represents the animal's viewpoint on this and there are ways of doing it it does involve hanging out you know talking to scientists making sure you understand the particular way in which that animal exists within its environment and interacts with its environment so you know i got, I got interested in that by and then from there i got interested in just in the more general question of of um environmental environmental writing or you know eco ecological literary uh journalism again it seems to you know and there are some great examples of this uh one that i teach in my undergraduate class it's like how do you alert people to just how dire you know the situation is newspaper stories we tend to get a lot of numbers you know well um carbon levels have risen to their highest level in so many but you know the numbers the numbers have sort of limited impact on people because you know we can't imagine you know the thing with ecological stories is it's hard to imagine the scale. It's hard to imagine the numbers. What's the difference between a billion and a trillion? I mean, it's huge, but it just looks like a couple of zeros on the page. So this sort of writing maybe allows people ways of understanding it in 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 a manner that the newspapers don't allow. And a great story uh, that, that I teach in my undergraduate course is called The Ballad of the Syed Climatologists. It's a 2015 uh, story in Esquire by a guy named John Richardson. And what he did was rather than just, you know, recite the numbers and talk about this is melting and this is this is going downhill, he went out and he actually hung out with the climate scientists themselves just to see what they say, what they say, sure, but also not just what they say, but also how are they feeling? How are they coping with this? And, you know, some are coping okay, uh, but a lot of them aren't, it turns out in this article. A lot of them are suffering. I can't remember if he, I can't remember whose term it was. They, they're they suffering from something you could call a pre-traumatic, uh, you know, stress disorder or something to that effect. They're, they're, they're depressed. They're anxious. 
they're, you know, not only are they getting death threats from people who oppose their sort of research, but they're actually suffering psychologically. And these are the canaries in the coal mines, right? That, that, it, so in my mind, this was, a, this was a great way to tell the story. Let's look at the people who are closest to, uh, who, who have the greatest insight into what's happening and let's just see how it's affecting them personally. There you get, you know, literary journalism is about the felt experience. And so we get to see what these people are feeling. And the bad news is they're not feeling so good, right? I'm glad you brought that up. And it, it's, it actually um, kind of ties in with with um, a conversation that um, we're having this, this series with Christina Santos about the... Um, mental toll that telling stories can take, and and so I'm kind of curious how do uh, how do literary journalists deal with that? Because if you're immersing yourself in this in the subject uh, or in the in the setting, you're, you're you're developing this 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 relationship, and you're dealing with heavy topics. Is the well is the mental well being coping skills that kind of thing? Like, what's what's the impact that these kinds of topics have on the journalist? It's not an area that I know a lot about, but I do I do know this. I mean, the the objective journalist is regarded, like I said, the the camera is a sort of metaphor for what they are. They're supposed to go in there neutrally, record what happened, and just go back, right, go home, and uh, and 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 suffer no consequences, but. That's not the case at all. Journalists suffer uh, trauma regularly. And it's something that I don't think the business had properly acknowledged. But increasingly, I think there's, there's more and more research being done into it. And I think it's being acknowledged as, and, and it sort of puts the lie to the objective journalist, the fact that this person can just be a neutral observer. It's not possible, right? I believe there's a, a Mark Massé has a book on the on the, the relationship between trauma and journalism. So there is research being done on it, and it is being acknowledged now in a way that it wasn't before. That's encouraging. Um, I know when I consume my news and my media, I'm not always thinking about what the impact is on the person who is 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 reporting it. In today's news, we're we're kind of conditioned, especially for online or on social media, to these like bite-sized, you know, the 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 video clip, the 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 ten-second video clip, and the two hundred and forty-character tweet to sum up a news story. Um, so, so what's the place of these slow, immersive uh, reporting techniques that um, that you teach? What's what is their place in the media today, mm-hmm. and are they are are they being appreciated, or is it a, a form that is struggling? Hmm. That's a good question, and I'm not sure the answer to that. I think you know, I think I think print is is is, is uh, suffering in many ways, including in this. But there are online venues for for uh, this type of journalism, and I think there always will be a market for it. I think. Not sure, but I think it may be increasingly in books. But when you call it slow journalism, when you refer to it, the slow aspect of it, you can see that there's certainly a need for it, right? There is a need for for like the slow food movement and um, and uh, uh, Barbara Sievers, right, slowing down the pace of, of everything. There is there there is a, certainly a, a need uh, for this, and I, I could tie this back to environmental reporting i mean rob nixon in his book on slow violence he describes this sort of environmental destruction that happens as something that is 
this totally beyond the scope of daily newspapers, daily journalism to report. Daily journalism likes things that explode. They like gunfire. They like you know, crime that happens in a sort of punctual way that you can easily identify. But, you know, Rob Nixon will say, well, the sort of environmental degradation happens through a slow attrition. It's something something that happens over periods that we can't even properly, you know, witness just by being there. So the sort of the sort of attention to those larger scales of time is something that literary journalism is, is I think, w- well adapted to to uh, to represent. That the focus on the everyday and and so on are things that things that uh, seem to seem to you know hold out a lot of promise I think and that people you would think will will respond to that people will will want to uh, to read. You mentioned earlier the idea of journalism as seeking some kind of objective truth. And we've seen in the past few years this this rise of quote unquote fake news. I kind of hate the term. I've heard it so many times um, and misinformation um, and and around the, the the pandemic that is um, that is an issue. Um, so how how has that um, changed or influenced how you think about and how you teach journalism? Yeah. Um so fake news, you know, is, is maddening that, you know, I think as scholars and academics, we have a certain commitment to truth and certainly journalists do. And to see the sort of rhetoric that, that gave rise to uh, to these cries of, of uh, fake news, uh, a couple of things happened. You know, I, I, I've taught in the social justice department, I've taught a course on news. And in that course, I'm hi- highly critical of news uh, for a lot of ways, the political economy of news, the certain ways in which the, the formats dictate uh, messages being constructed in a way is highly critical of this. But then fake news comes along and this sort of uh, uncritical assault on on uh, the news media. And I suddenly, you know, you find yourself defending this thing that you were once a critic of saying, well, wait, you know, th- there's a lot that the news does that we really need that is really valuable. You need a well-developed sort of media environment in order to sort of, if nothing else to sort of hold the corrupt politicians to account once the once the once the news media becomes sort of um you know uh thinned out uh, there's more room for that sort of malfeasance so uh you know i, I the, the fake news is is, a, is is a disturbing uh event but i i do teach it i use it as a sort of jumping off point in my first year class on rhetoric where the topic is the relationship between rhetoric and truth. And rhetoric and truth have had a vexed long-term relationship. You know, the sophists were seen as people who would just say whatever would persuade people with with little regard for truth. Um, so so it's a theme of that course. But I, I should say here, I tried, I, I, I began editing a book on fake news about 15 years ago. And at that time, and I couldn't get a lot of traction with it, but at that time, fake news as was something else. It meant something else. It meant news that, well, I guess this is what the people who talk about fake news are talking about. But it, but it was it was about people who make about journalists who make stories up, and there have been a history of these people. Stephen Glass is one, for example, that that comes to mind. Jason Blair. There are numerous accounts of journalists who have made stuff up, and it's an interesting phenomenon in journalism that these people could. Like it, it, the thing about it is, it's exceptional. It's not the rule, right? Unlike what the Trumpian sort of people say. It, 
But uh, it was interesting to sort of look at these exceptions to see what they could reveal about journalism. Uh, Stephen Glass makes a story up, gets it through the fact checkers and the editors at the New Republic, and it gets into print. Well, this shows us something about the sort of desires of those editors and the sort of things that they imagine as being possible in the world. This guy was making stuff up out of, out of whole cloth. So, so when I teach my course on rhetoric and truth, we, we look at those sort of fake news stories as a way of talking about journalism itself and as a way of addressing what to me seems like a, at least a threat as big as fake news. These, you know, the, or, or, and that is the sort of way in which the public relations industry has encroached on journalism. You used to have a sort of clear line between editorial and advertising uh, in, in newsrooms. Um, but what's happened over the years is, is the fewer and fewer people, as newsrooms are hiring fewer and fewer people, there's fewer and fewer journalists out there. There has been, at the same time, an incredible rise in the number of PR practitioners who are out there trying to get their sort of interested message into legitimate media outlets. And what's happening is there's fewer and fewer journalists, more and more PR people, more and more of the stuff you're getting in your newspaper is not news. It is essentially sort of propaganda for specific interests, the specific interests that the uh, reporter works at. So I guess my point here is I have a slightly different take on fake news than how it, how it is uh, conceived, but I think it's one that, that makes sense if you look at what's happening in the sort of larger uh, sort of news media ecosystem. Public relations is, is becoming uh, increasingly uh, it's leaving its footprint in you know bigger and bigger ways in the news all the time. You just think, well, you know, that's good. Even even you know, you look at Trump, uh, and look at Trump, and I'm trying to recall how this worked exactly. But he, uh, you know, when he was trying to when he was making a name for himself in the 1990s in New York, he would pose as a guy. I think John Barron, who was apparently who was who was supposed to be Trump's PR person, right? He was in fact playing the role of a PR person saying, oh, this Trump, he's not a bad guy. I've met him. He's okay. He's, you know, he's not such a bad guy. So we have Trump playing a public relations person. And and you think about it, he sort of was that in, in many ways, right? He was about creating pseudo events. And so, you know, it's a big question and uh, I don't pretend to have the answers for it, but, um, it certainly, it certainly, it certainly does point out to just how, how the news is under assault. In, in many, from many, many quarters. Do you have any thoughts about why um, misinformation, why, like why these stories are appealing to consumers? Like, are, are we consuming them unwittingly or are we drawn to these kinds of stories? Again, you know, I'm not really an expert on that, but I, I think, you know, the studies show that people like, you know, there's confirmation bias. People like things that, that confirm what they already think. There's, you know, if you, you know, some of these, some of these uh, websites that were generating stories, the people had no stake at all in the political outcomes of what these stories represented, but they did know that the more sensational, the more outlandish the story is, uh, the more hits it's going to get. So you know, I think in a lot of cases it's driven. It's driven by the by the uh, by the um, business models of, of the websites that these people are working for. So you know, 
Um, why do people fall for it? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's, it, it's maddening, particularly when you look at it in terms of all of the disinformation circulating, uh, about, about COVID and vaccines and things like that. It's, uh, it does seem like, uh, a, a meme certainly, yeah. it doesn't, doesn't amount to research and it doesn't amount to knowledge. And there's certainly, um, I, I suppose, influence from from social media, which again operates on the basis of kind of what is outrageous is what gets engagement, and that's what the platforms like because it it gets users using it and advertisers advertising. And just the just the sort of orderly world that a conspiracy theory presents to the readers, mm. as opposed to something that's far more nuanced and complex and stuff like that. It's just you know, it's just it, it is it is a, it is a, a sort of uh, it is a, a narrative that's easier to say, oh, yeah, that makes sense, right? As opposed to things that we can't sort of fully see our way through, I guess. We've been decrying for a long time now in, in Canada, at any rate, about the decline of newspaper reporting. I know the, uh, even in my own lifetime, when I was uh, young, growing up in, in rural southwestern Ontario, the nearest town had its own newspaper and its own reporters. And now that newspaper, it's still going, but it's largely the same kinds of articles that you find in other newspapers owned by the same big conglomerate. So how how do we as consumers of news, um, both kind of the, the the quicker daily journalism, but also the longer form um, in investigations, how, how do we demand better? I hate to have a simplistic answer, but it's buy the newspaper, <laughs> you know, buy a newspaper, buy a couple of newspapers, subscribe to a newspaper support. You know, we're, we're so used to, to back. We, we take it for granted that the, that, that the news is, is like, uh, you know, a fr- a fr- is free from, uh, from the news aggregators, but it's certainly not free. And that those people have, those aggregators have thinned out the news newsroom. So, you know, I, I, I subscribe to, uh, it's should subscribe to more, but I subscribe to a newspaper. I get the standard every day, and and uh, I find that, and I'm glad I do too, because I I you know I know what's going on in my community. I feel like I am able to understand what's happening in in St. Catharines and Niagara now in a way that I didn't prior to subscribing to it. I'm supporting you know, and 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 you know the thing is the the quality of the journalism there. I think is pretty good. I think they 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 they've done some great work over the last couple of years in particularly holding you know. Uh, holding the powers that be accountable and uh, coming forward in, in many cases with that sort of, um, with the fearlessness, you know, with that, that we do associate with journalism. So yeah. So buy a newspaper. It's like, how, you know, how do you support, support, how do you support authors? Well, you know, you buy books, right? <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, I think it's, it's probably as simple as that. I suppose on a larger scale, there could be movements like what Australia is doing, trying to, uh, make the, make the aggregators pay for the news that they, you know, that they take from, from the, uh, print news sources. And that there's probably something to be said about that. I think as well, the federal government is sort of chipping in, supporting newspapers by, by uh, funding certain um, certain initiatives, funding certain reporters in, in different jurisdictions to do work. Um, I don't know how comfortable journalists are with governments, you know, paying for for uh, paying paying for a portion of journalists' salary. But uh, it seems like uh, you know it's a, it, it is a dire situation. You just 
have to you just have to imagine what would things be like if there were not the reporter's eyes on mm. on different uh, public things happening. Well, any hope, <laughs> any uh, any any hopeful thought we can uh, we can end on in in, in terms of um, the maybe some uh, examples of of how journalism has changed has changed things. Well, I, I you know. I think the fact is that that it has, right? We 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 see that that uh, you know there's a lot of disinformation and the journals don't have the resources that are available, but it seems like there are people who want to, you know, investigate things and tell the truth, be it, you know, there are there are sort of uh journalists have lost their jobs, but but some of them have gone and set up websites where they report on, you know, uh on municipal issues in a way that that they felt their local media wasn't. So I, I think there is a, an inclination among a certain type of person to want to uh, expose things, to want things to run better than they do. And I am optimistic about that about that sort of spirit. I think that's something that drives you know many journalists, and I don't think they're they're willing to uh, to to just let that go. Well, that's good. And in terms of teaching, um, teaching the the next generation of of journalists and of lit, of literary journalists in in, in particular, what uh, what kinds of courses have you been teaching this year, or have or have coming up that uh, people might be interested in? Uh, well. Just relevant to this, I taught my literary journalism class this term, and and uh, you know, there's people from who have taken that course who have gone on to uh, to work in journalism, have have done things. Uh, I should say this term was unusual because uh, we're all locked down, we're all engaging in through 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 little little screens, and students could not go out and hang around with the people about whom they were writing. So I haven't uh, the the paper the stories just arrived. So I haven't had a chance to read them yet, but I'm, I'm interested in seeing how they how they how they have have managed this. It is possible to do it, but if you think about you know immersion journalism is about being there. Well, we can't be there these days. We can't, or, or, or the students certainly can't. So uh, I tried to offer them some strategies on how how to do it, and some of the stories that have been described for me sound great, right? Someone has written uh, a piece on uh, death doulas, death doulas. These are sort of like midwives for people who are in a palliative setting. So this is, this is a terrible topic, but it's a great story. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of confidence that this person did manage to use the technology in such a way that they were able to get that story that they otherwise would have had to get sort of in person. So, so uh, yeah, that, that, that was, uh, it was weird. That was a strange. It was strange teaching this in that format. But uh, but I think uh, I think people adapted. Well, thank you very much for joining us today. I'm glad that um, we have had this conversation. I always enjoy our conversations, and um, someday I want to be in that class. <laughs> great to have you. That would be um, it sounds it sounds really interesting, and and I know in the past I've had I've had the occasion to to um, to visit. Um, your, with your students and um, and see the care that 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 you take in in teaching. So, thank you so much for making the time to join us today. Thank you, Allison. That was great. Thank you so much for listening to Forward. Find all of our footnotes, links to more information, transcripts, and past episodes on our website, rockview.ca/humanities. 
We love to hear from our listeners. So please join us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Rock Humanities. Please subscribe and rate us as well on your favorite podcasting app so you will never miss an episode. Forward is hosted and produced by Alison Innes for the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University. Our sound design and editing is done by Nicole Arndt. Theme music is by Khalid Imam. Special thanks to Brock University's Makerspace and Brock University Marketing and Communications for studio and web support. This podcast is financially supported by the Faculty of Humanities at Brock University.